Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider, can a book give you a second chance at something you failed in life? Wait, what? (laughs) I didn't realize that that was what we were considering. I thought we were considering astronomy. Well, we we were. We we are. But astronomy (laughs) is something I failed at miserably or would have failed at if I had not gotten a pity pass from my professor. Mm. So, okay, here's what happened. Okay. In the fall of 1986, I'm a freshman in college and Haley's Comet became visible again after 70 years of not being able to be seen. I don't know if you remember this. Yes. It was a big deal at the time. So yes. like gazillions of other college students, I enrolled in Physics 101, which at my school was called AstroGut because it was the easy physics because mm-hmm. I'd get to learn more about Haley's Comet and use the telescope. And I almost failed the class. I, I just did not get it. The math, the easy math was too hard. I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that light travels in waves or maybe it was pulses. I tried so hard. I spent hours on homework and I went to my professor's office hours every single week. And he was this, I remember this world renowned physicist with Einstein hair and so nice and tried so hard. And yet I was still the very first person in the gigantic multi-hundred person lecture hall to finish the final. And not because I knew all the answers. Oh dear, dear. I actually went up to my professor, handed him my blue book and said, I will understand if you need to fail me. So (laughs) it's definitely a a pity pass. Okay. Now I think I see where you're going with this. Yes. Yes. Because fast forward 30 years and along comes this book, The Last Stargazers, The Enduring Story of Astronomy's Vanishing Explorers by Emily Levesque. And suddenly everything that felt so completely mystifying before, red giants and supernovas and how light travels and how telescopes work, all of that, Emily Levesque made all of that so easily understandable and fun and exciting. I was elated the entire time I was reading. It is a wonderful book. Listen to this blurb, for example. It's like catching a glimpse of the magic behind the curtain galaxies away and leaves you hanging on every spectacular word. A must read for anyone who has looked up at the sky and felt a sense of wonder, as well as those considering the world of astrophysics and astronomy. That's Tamara Robertson, host of Mythbusters, The Search. Just a bit about Emily Levesque, too, before we get to the interview. She's a professor in the University of Washington's astronomy department. Her research program is focused on improving our overall understanding of how massive stars evolve and die. She's the recipient of the 2020 Newton Lacey Pierce Prize and the 2014 Annie Jump Cannon Award from the American Astronomical Society. She's also a 2019 Cottrell Scholar and a 2017 Alfred P. Sloan Research Fellow. Emily received her astronomy PhD at University of Hawaii and her Bachelor of Science in Physics from MIT. 
The Last Stargazers is Emily's first popular science book. It's an Amazon Best Book of 2020, a finalist for the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award, a finalist for the AAS Subaru SB&F Prize for Excellence in Science Books, and a 2021 Alex Award official nominee. We started by asking Emily what made her want to write The Last Stargazers and how she did her research. Here's what she said. It was kind of fun to fall into the idea and the sort of background for this book because I've written a couple academic books, so books on my research or textbooks for classes that I teach. And I had a couple publishers reach out asking, you know, have you ever thought about writing a popular science book? And I immediately answered, oh, no, but let's talk because it sounds like a neat world. I knew it was a very different type of publishing. And when I sat down with someone um, who actually wound up being my literary agent, he asked me, you know, if there was a popular science book that you would write about astronomy, what do you think it would be about? And to my amazement, the idea then came out of my mouth, which <laughs> I've never had happen to me before. But it came from the idea that astronomers tell each other stories about our incredibly odd and unusual and adventurous jobs. And it's how we share the field with one another. It's how we share our own experiences. It's, you know, how people bond over drinks at a conference. And I realized these are great stories. They tell people what it's actually like to be an astronomer. It gives people this behind the scenes view of our jobs. And to tell the stories well, you also have to explain the science. And it seemed like a nice way to introduce people to the science of our jobs by going through the human stories. So that's what prompted the idea. And then I spoke to more than 100 fellow astronomers and just sort of sat down with them and said, tell me your favorite observing stories. Tell me the observing story you heard someone tell you that is totally not true, but you love repeating it anyway. And tell me the person you think I should talk to because you think they have a story. And it was it was an organic way to put it together but it wound up being this great compilation of people's experiences in the field alongside the science that they do. So the research was new to me, but really fun to undertake. That sounds so much fun. Now, you got your undergraduate degree in physics from MIT, and you said, I'm quoting you here, MIT was my first real indication that the road to brilliance sometimes took a few turns that steered well clear of common sense. Can you say more about what you mean by that? I remember starting at MIT as a freshman, and I so immediately felt at home there as somebody who loved science, who loved math. I was suddenly cool because I'd you know, taken calculus early. And getting to meet other people who were so wonderfully unbridled in their geeky interests. And I remember the dorm that I lived in, I think my sophomore year, we started what became a tradition where we built a roller coaster out of two by fours and like a big working, more than a story tall oh roller God. coaster that we got wow. that we got the president of the university to ride. And wait, people, people wrote you built people wrote it. Wow. I think we nicknamed it Physics the Ride. <laughs> but um if you look at that on its face, you've got a bunch of, you know, 19 and 20 year olds with two by fours and sort of a plan. And it seems like such a terrible idea to have people build a roller coaster. But I was running around this dorm courtyard with some of the best engineers in the world. And this was what they did in their spare time. And these were the ideas that they made happen. So it was a little microcosm of, you know, let's pull out an idea that probably sounds a little 
terrible, probably sounds a little ridiculous, and see how we can make it work. And having been sort of the lonely, nerdy kid in high school, I hadn't really seen what happened when you got a bunch of people like this together and sort of combined that collective energy and creativity and weirdness. And it was a nice early sense of, okay, this is what it's going to be like to work with folks like this full time, which I found very encouraging. Oh, yeah. MIT just got a little harder to get into based on that story. (laughs) Sounds amazing. (laughs) Um, Main focus of your work since the very beginning of your career has been red supergiants. First, for people who don't know, can you explain what a red supergiant is? And then can you describe how and why you decided to study them? Yes. So red supergiants are very massive stars. And when we call a star massive in astronomy, we have a very specific meaning. It means it's got at least eight times the mass of our sun or more. So red supergiants are much more massive than our sun. They're actually nearing the ends of their lives, which is another thing people don't necessarily realize. Stars are born and actually grow old and evolve and then die. So red supergiants are nearing the end of their evolution. And because of this, they've cooled off and puffed up to be these very huge red stars. And a famous example of it is Betelgeuse in the constellation Orion. If anybody knows that constellation, one of Orion's shoulders looks like this sort of reddish orangey star. And that's Betelgeuse, a classic red supergiant. They're so big that if you put one of them where our sun is in our solar system, the star itself would stretch out, you know, well past the orbit of Mars, in some cases out past the orbit of Jupiter. They become really interesting stars to study when talking about sort of stellar extremes. These are also the stars that die and make the big fireworks show that we know as a supernova. They'll leave behind something like a black hole, which just bends our entire understanding of physics and are some of the weirdest and coolest objects in the universe. And that connection to black holes is actually what originally got me interested in studying them. I had a research advisor who I talk about in the book who offered me a couple of potential research projects over a summer. And he said, you can work on blue supergiants, which are young, massive stars, or you can work on red supergiants, which are older, massive stars. And I, at the time, was fascinated by black holes and said, well, of those two types of stars, the red ones are the ones that are closer to dying. So I guess that's as close as I'll get to black holes for now. I suppose I'll pick this project. And I went on to become fascinated by these stars and the physics of how they work, how they're behaving as they reach the ends of their lives, and how they go from a star to these really weird objects. And can you say a little bit more about their importance? Yeah, there's so much we can learn about stars at this stage. When they produce a supernova, they're hurling atoms and molecules and material back out into interstellar space and they're seeding the next generation of stars. They're basically enriching the universe and adding to its chemistry. So understanding that process is a really key part of understanding how our universe evolved and how it became the place that we know today. We also really want to understand how we make a black hole. We study today things like two black holes that collide and create a really weird phenomenon called gravitational waves. We study how black holes interact with their environments. We study how these stars sort of go from this big cold state to this tiny post-collapse state. And in doing that, we learn a lot about the sort of energy production in these stars. We learn again about the chemistry of these stars. 
And we really get a clearer picture of how entire groups of stars, sometimes entire galaxies worth of stars can work. Isn't it amazing how Emily makes every aspect of astronomy sound so cool and interesting and understandable? It is. I'm not too old for a PhD, am I? And, and a, a career change? Oh my gosh, definitely not. That <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, might be. <laughs> Just, no, no, you know, I'm always struck by stories from people whose whole life trajectory is determined by one seemingly small decision. You know, the way that Emily described choosing to focus on red supergiants because a research advisor gave her a choice between old red ones or young blue ones. And she picked red because they're closer to black holes but she just as easily could have picked blue supergiants or something else entirely. I know. And it's such a good thing she chose red because her research on red supergiants led to her and a colleague discovering a new type of star. Uh, how cool is that? So cool. So of course we asked Emily to tell us the story of how she made that discovery. My colleague Phil Massey and I had been studying red supergiants for years, and we'd noticed a few stars that were a little odd. They were colder than other stars. They were brighter. Their brightness and temperature changed, and we'd set them aside as outliers. And we got an email from a woman named Anna Zhitkov saying, you might have discovered these very strange stars that I predicted along with Kip Thorne decades ago. And we hadn't heard of these stars at the time, but they are called Thorne-Jitkov objects. They're named after Kip Thorne and Anna. And they are basically one star buried inside another star. It's what happens when two stars merge and survive the merging process. So it's a star that looks just like a red supergiant, but its core is very different and very unusual. Most stars' cores are basically little fusion reactors. They fuse hydrogen into helium or helium into carbon, and that fusion is how they generate energy to sort of power the star. In a Thorn-Jitkov object, the core is actually the leftover collapsed husk of another enormous star. And it's not supported by fusion, it's supported by really weird principles of quantum physics. And after Anna described these stars to us, we thought they sounded fascinating. We knew that they would look almost exactly like red supergiants, and we'd been studying big samples of red supergiants, so we thought, well, we should go looking for these. We truly didn't think that we would find them. And instead, to our amazement, we found one star that had the exact chemical profile that you would expect. We had thought it was just another red supergiant. It turned out to be the best candidate we've found so far for a Thorne-Jitkov object, for this very strange new type of star and this whole new picture for how stars can work. There was no eureka moment in this discovery. We were looking at this vague little blurry squiggle and saying, well, that looks that looks weird. That, that looks different? Did we do this right? That No, I think that looks weird. And then after months of sort of checking ourselves and testing it, we realized what we'd found. And there's famous quote saying, you know, the best sound in science isn't eureka, it's huh. That's funny. And this was such a wonderful example of that. Oh, it's really cool. Can you give us a very basic overview of how telescopes work and tell us about the size, the complexity, and the precision of the kinds of telescopes that professionals like you work with? Yeah, so a lot of the telescopes that we use today and a lot of the telescopes that I focus on in the book deal with the same kind of light that we see with our eyes. 
and they pick up the light using mirrors nowadays. We'll build a telescope with an enormous mirror and expose that mirror to the night sky and starlight will pour down onto the mirror and get reflected up to maybe another mirror, maybe a camera, maybe some other scientific instrument. And by collecting that light, we can then digitize it today and study it and look at things like the color of a star or the chemistry of a star. And the key here is that stars are incredibly dim. Most of the stars that we study in my research are stars that you could never see with the naked eye. So you want to gather as much light from these stars as possible. And that means making a telescope with a really, really big mirror. If you think about what happens to your eye's pupil, in a dark room. The pupil will dilate to let in as much light as possible. Our huge telescopes are just that principle taken to an immense extreme. Mm -hmm. So the telescopes that we use professionally now are the size of buildings. And we have telescope mirrors that are like 10, 20, 30, 40 feet across. And with that, we can detect enough light to actually get usable data from galaxies on the other side of the universe and ridiculously dim stars that we would never otherwise be able to see. But it means that the most important thing in a telescope is the size of that big main mirror. We build really advanced instruments to gather and study the light. The designs of telescopes can really vary, but everything comes down to just how much light the telescope can gather. So you have these gigantic, complex machines that are capable of incredibly precise work. And then things like weather and breakage and animals. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the impact of what can go wrong? Oh, yeah. This is always one of my favorite parts of talking about actually observing and working as an astronomer, because it's you've got this sort of wonderful, grand cosmic purpose, like, oh, I'm going to disentangle how stars work. And you get some really precious time on one of these enormous telescopes. Um, accessing telescopes is very competitive and people will write proposals for just one night on a telescope with a 30 foot mirror. And then you show up on that night and you've got a plan and you've got a list of everything you're gonna observe and then it's raining and that's it. You can't even open the dome of the telescope because rain pouring onto that big beautiful mirror is so potentially damaging. And that's just it for your night. If you're assigned a particular night and it's raining, you can't just wait and try again another night because somebody else is showing up with their own program. So we've all lost time due to weather. And there's even more ridiculous ways to sometimes lose telescope access because we are working with big but very delicate instruments and a shutter breaking on a camera or a drive getting damaged that helps to turn the telescope could be enough to make it impossible to observe. And then I've had colleagues who have had, you know, swarms of ladybugs alight on the mountain while they're observing and they crawl into everything. They'll make it hard for the telescope dome to open. They'll crawl into the electronics and gum up the works. And it seems really wild to say, you know, I studied physics for years. I wrote this proposal. We built this beautiful telescope. I drove out to an observatory and flew out to this place in the middle of nowhere and ladybugs stopped us from answering our question. But it's the, it's the reality of the job that we do. There was an example you gave in the book. It's a total Indiana Jones moment of 20th century observation. Can you please tell the story of Paul Hodge at the Boyden Observatory in South Africa? 
Yes. Paul Hodge uh, was a beloved colleague of mine at the University of Washington. And this dates back to when telescopes didn't use digital data yet. They were storing data on what we call photographic plates. So they were glass plates that were chemically treated to respond to light, but they were treated more like sort of traditional photography. You would expose a plate while you observed, and then you would go into a dark room and develop that plate. And it was an exhausting, arduous process. You'd usually be doing this at the end of a long night in the dark so that you didn't accidentally overexpose the plates. You'd have these carefully prepared and painstakingly taken plates sitting in a chemical bath to sort of lock down the image that you'd taken. And Paul was doing this at the end of an observing run. He'd had a great night of observing. He put all of his plates into the developer bath, and then he stepped out of the dark room. And he watched his watch carefully and said, all right, the plates have been exposed for exactly the right amount of time. Now it's time to go back in and take them out. He opened the door to the developing room. He looked down and a cobra had crawled into this dark room ahead of him. <gasps> so now he was looking at the floor going, well, now the cobra lives there. And, you know, do you just leave the room to this dangerous snake, knowing that it's going to destroy all of the data that you took during that night of observing? Or do you flick on the light to see the cobra, which also destroys the data? Or do you just wander in after the snake, finishing developing the plates and just hope that the deadly snake leaves you alone? And that's what he opted for because he knew that if he didn't, he was going to lose an entire night of data. He successfully got all the plates done. He flicked on the lights and then the Cobra was just curled up in a little ball next to the sink where he'd been working. <laughs> it's one of those choices where you go, wow, there's, there's a lot of different ways this story could end. And it was one of those examples of just how, just the lengths that people will go to to get this really precious telescope data. An amazing story. <laughs> Can you say a little about how radically observation work has changed over the past 50 years, a little bit more about what it was like to observe before digital photography? Yeah. In the early days when you were capturing your data on a glass plate, you would work for hours before the night even started. You would take these plates that were sort of mass produced by, say, Kodak, and hand slice them and design them and chemically treat them to respond to light in the exact way that you would need them to. You would then go to the telescope at night and load these plates into the camera for every image that you wanted to take. And that meant you were sitting next to the telescope camera all night. This sometimes meant that you were actually sitting up at the top of these building-sized telescopes, sort of riding along with them as they pointed from star to star. And you'd you know, shiver in these cold domes all night for hours, changing out glass plates, trying desperately not to break them while you got your data. And then at the end, you'd come down and bring those plates into a development room and hope that there were you know, no cobras. And then and only then would you wind up with finished usable data. And today we can operate telescopes digitally. So we can operate them from another room in the observatory, which is nice and warm. And you get to see your data almost instantly as it comes in. And more so, especially um, astronomy had to sort of solve this problem very quickly in the past year and a half because of the pandemic. We can operate telescopes from afar. I can run telescopes from my laptop here at my desk in Seattle when the telescope is in New Mexico. And we've also even come up with sort of alternate techniques for how telescopes can work 
period. You might submit an observing plan to a telescope that then gets put into that telescope's queue and observed on a night when you're asleep because you'll have already planned all the observations. Somebody else will execute them and then send you their data. Or we even have telescopes that operate robotically. They just survey the sky over and over and then astronomers can download the data and look through it for whatever type of research they might be doing. The type of science this enables is amazing, but you do lose that adventure of, you know, riding along in a telescope for eight hours at night with, you know, people would play classical music in the telescope dome and wear like World War II surplus flight suits to stay warm. It was just a different type of adventure back in the day. You noted that the world's best telescopes can cost anywhere between $15,000 and $55,000 per night to operate, and their only profits are the scientific strides made possible by their immense observing capabilities. I'm quoting you a little bit there. What are a couple of examples of those strides, and why are they important? Oh, this is a great question because it, it gets at a thing I know a lot of people wonder about, which is why do we do astronomy and why do we pay for and fund it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can think of strides like, for example, the GPS um, tool that all of us have on our phones and that we all use in our car. GPS works because of Einstein's theory of general relativity. And general relativity was tested and proven thanks to a telescope. Arthur Eddington, back in 1919, was able to use observations of a solar eclipse to prove that general relativity worked the way Einstein thought it worked. And at the time, it was just a beautiful theory of physics. Neither Eddington or Einstein was thinking, well, one day we're going to need this on our iPhones. Today, we're learning new things about (laughs) things as fundamental as the shape of our universe or how the universe might have begun or ended. We are learning new things about planets in solar systems beyond our own that could potentially host life. And these are intellectually fascinating. They may carry with them practical applications down the road, but I more see these as kind of fundamental to who we are as humans and who we are as, you know, planet citizens that we just understand our universe this well. Can we talk about UFOs just a little? Yes. Good. Uh, You said in your book that not a single astrophysicist that you know or have heard of has ever observed a UFO, but I'm guessing you finished writing your book before the government's big UFO report was released recently. What did you make of that report? Well, I think that the term UFO is worth taking very literally of something that's unidentified. And astronomers know the night sky very well. And no astronomer has ever been observing, looked at something and said, that's an unidentified flying object. That's an alien. It usually winds up being Venus or a satellite or things like geese flying high whose bellies are lit by the setting sun. It's very easy to trick your eye, even for people as familiar with the night sky as astronomers. But the mystery tends to be solved in the end. I didn't get the chance to read the report in detail. I know that what was described was unidentified. I have every confidence that it will be identified as something very earthbound in origin, but maybe something unusual or interesting. I do not think that it has very much to do with space. But do you think it's likely that intelligent life exists somewhere in the universe other than Earth? And if so, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea for us to try to make contact? So I absolutely do think that the universe has intelligent life beyond our own. And there are entire fields of astronomy where experts on this talk about 
how we could potentially find life, period, on other planets, let alone intelligent life, what it might mean to contact that life or amazingly even communicate with it. This is a subfield known as astrobiology. And people dedicate decades of research and really careful analysis to understanding what life elsewhere in the universe could mean. I definitely think it's out there. And I love the idea of us finding signs of it one day. I think that communication or travel is just a completely different scale of problem. But right now, I know there are a lot of astronomers that would be incredibly excited just to find signs of life, period, on another planet. And a lot of the next generation telescopes that are being built will have really powerful instruments on board that could be capable of helping us get closer to this discovery, which would be just so exciting. Oh my gosh. Yes. Can we talk about what might qualify as the coolest kind of astronomy? Can you please tell our listeners about SOFIA? Yes. So SOFIA is the name of a telescope. It stands for the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. And it is what it sounds like. It's a telescope that operates from the stratosphere. The telescope is built into the back of a specially modified Boeing 747. So this plane flies into the stratosphere. It flies higher than most commercial aircraft up to about, you know, 45,000, 48,000 feet. And while it's flying, it then opens a door in the back of the plane, exposing this telescope. And this telescope can then detect infrared light that you can see from that high up in our atmosphere. You see it when you get above most of the water vapor and clouds and junk in our atmosphere that you would normally never be able to pick up from the ground. So it is a flying telescope plane that flies with its door open and uses this telescope to get data that would otherwise be impossible for us to observe. I love that. You know, there are so many professions where people go into it because they love something and somehow the joy gets sucked out of it. And it sounds like your profession is not one of those professions. It's, it sounds like people maintain their their love for what they're doing. Oh, yeah. And I think everybody has moments of impatience. I mean, nobody is musing on the grandeur of the universe at three in the morning at a telescope that's been closed all night because of wind, thinking, you know, the universe is beautiful, but God, a pillow sounds amazing right now. <laughs> and when you're, you know, cursing at your data, trying to get it to make sense, I mean, it, it carries its frustrations like anything else. But the thing that drives you into astronomy is just curiosity about the universe. And it's really nice to be in the field for as long as a lot of us are and never lose that curiosity. I, I interviewed colleagues in their 90s who were as jump up and down excited about astronomy as they must have been when they were six. And it's really nice to see that. I'm picturing Daniel Craig half hanging out of the open door on that Boeing 747 fighting the villain who's trying to sabotage Sophia. And I'm seeing Helen Hunt with him and her role from Twister, you know, like, I'll take any risk for the sake of science. Yes, <laughs> totally. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, I was curious why it was worth operating a massive telescope out of an airplane in order to detect infrared light. It turns out infrared light can pick out planets, stars, and nebulae that are too cool and dim to see otherwise. And Earth scientists use satellites to measure infrared radiation coming from the Earth, which helps us do things like fight forest fires and measure climate change. The possibilities for increasing knowledge and making important discoveries through astronomy are truly thrilling. It's no wonder Emily's 90-year-old colleagues are still jumping up and down, excited about their work. 
I'm getting that jumping up and down feeling too. And I hope the same goes for everyone listening. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Emily on Twitter at E-M-S-Q-U-E. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and